This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast. We look to nature for how we should interrelate to the world. All the answers are within nature if we take the time to listen. But what we have to find is a reasonable way how to handle plastic. You know, consumers expect more. They're expecting brands to be more sustainable. They're choosing sustainable brands. These are the stories and ideas from those that will define a generation. I'm your host, Steve Kassinem, and this is our planet in focus. When I was a, a schoolboy, we learned at school that um, that was new, that was late 80s, that we should bring back the, the can, cans of Coke, etc., you know, because aluminium can be recycled. So that was like, when it comes to, when you ask me, what, what is it growing up here? So that was like my, my very first moment where I learned, okay, we didn't talk about sustainability. I think this term wasn't invented back then, mm-hmm. <laughs> wasn't used back then. That's like really 30 years ago. So it's, <laughs> you didn't say it's sustainable. You said just it's good for the environment, you know, mm. we, have to, we have to save resources. And we, as a school kid, we also, I think once or every month, we went to collect paper outside the houses in the village where I grew up. Really? Yeah. So that was like a school kids um, afternoon. And so we did this for the community, collect the paper, but it took a while until I, I understood why, because it was going to be recycled you know, in the end. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's so interesting. So it was kind of like a community thing that that was... It was like something that every year or just every kid does? Yes, back then. Mm. But now, in as of today, now I live in Basel, which is uh, one of Switzerland's bigger cities. So this is professionalized by the city. So, um, mm-hmm. so of course, back then, recycling meant that we as school kids had like a, instead of school, we had a, an afternoon outside and collected the, the papers, the, the newspapers, etc. <laughs> That's so cool. That's such an interesting story of just like childhood being surrounded by it. Yes, yes. To save the forest. So that was the the message we got in. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Okay. So what so when you were young, what were you kind of most interested in kind of doing in life? What kind of lit you up and got you excited about the world around you? I think that was music. Yes. Mm-hmm. Music that was well, that got me excited the most, and languages. And soon, when I was uh, growing older, was traveling too. Yeah. Mm. And when I was started traveling at the age of twenty, I soon went to Thailand for the first time, and I discovered the fascination of the underwater world. Mm, yeah. So when was kind of your first experience with kind of true, was that your first experience with like ocean and kind of having that true appreciation of it or did it change your mindset? What was kind of... Yeah, the first uh, experience with ocean was probably when I was five or six years old, when we went for the first time to the, for holidays to the Mediterranean Sea, so Italy, France. But the first time diving, I will never forget this this was like a, an LSD trip. <laughs> it was, re- no, really, it was a, an, an enormous, it was this, this feeling of floating under the surface and this complete new world that opened up, you know, with the, those uh, distinctive colors, those distinctive animals I hadn't seen before. That was a, an enormous experience for me. Wow. I was flashed. That's uh, that's why why I comp- I made this comparison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so okay, so you were you were kind of pursuing music, kind of just other things in life, and did this change the trajectory of it? Like actually going to Thailand and that whole experience that you did have, did that kind of start to change things for you? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to how precious the ocean and its inhabitants are, yes, that changed a lot because I wasn't aware of that. You know, Switzerland is a landlocked country. We have a lot of mountains. We have we have a big, I think, connection to nature, but above sea level. <laughs> so so that was the the important uh, experience where I made in Thailand. And then from there I went to see other places uh, in the Caribbean, uh, Seychelles, uh, and other fascinating places 
as a diver and uh, yeah. Wow, what brought along this this trip to go? I mean, kind of all over the world. Was it just you were done with school and wanted to take a little bit of time to travel, or you know, was there something kind of pulling you in a certain direction? I think I just was very curious to see other places in the world, and uh, I quit my uh, my studies at the university when I was, I think, twenty three or twenty four. Had started uh, working as a journalist, so I was curious uh, and became a journalist to have more answers to questions that <laughs> that I wanted to um, have answered. And from there, I saved some money and then I wanted to explore the world. I was a classic backpacker, I would say. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Okay, so so you started, you kind of started your career as a journalist. Yes, yes. I was a journalist for 20 years. Wow. Okay, so what, what was kind of your focus on journalism? What did you kind of want to focus on when you first started? Yeah, when I first started, I was a classic reporter. So I, I really wrote stories about everything. I was the, the, the guy who was sent out to a report about, I don't know, the city's canalization or whatever. So um, explore new places and new scenes. And then uh, I also sometimes, uh, I wrote some stories about my journeys, of course. So as a travel journalist, but my main focus was uh, music, was uh, culture. That was uh, mm-hmm. what I knew most about. You know. So what is it about music culture that kind of spills over into society, if you will? Like I, I always found that music, so for me, I'm not musically inclined mm. really at all. I can recognize music, I use it in filmmaking, but mm. hand me an instrument, I don't really know what I'm doing. Mm. Mm. and and kind of very very poor at keeping keeping rhythm but i i know how much of a, a part music holds in society and like how communities come together and everything what did you kind of experience when you were traveling the world because i'd imagine music obviously wherever you go is different did you kind of see how that affected culture yeah i i mean it's a it's a cliche let's be honest it's a cliche that music connects people and builds bridges but i think it's a it's a true cliche, you know, uh, it's a fact. Well, you know, it's not that I did a musical journey, so explored um, other rhythms or uh, music styles when I was traveling. I really wanted to get to know the people and their, their whole culture, not, not just about music, so uh, their lifestyles. But music for me was always always a very emotional thing. It just touches me very much. I'm an emotional guy. I'm I'm touched uh, very fast when I see a movie, when I listen to a song, or when I see something that is not just you know, like for instance, what we yeah, what we all do as a global community to to planet Earth. So that's probably <laughs> where it comes together. Yeah, I mean, I I would think, I I think as more of a creative person, I think you have a little bit more of that kind of emotional connection. Did you did you kind of feel that when you were diving in Thailand? So I'd imagine fast forward a little bit, like just in that journey, mm. you probably had I don't know. My guess is some sort of connection in that moment that was just like such an emotional reaction of being underwater that it probably like changed changed you a little bit. Exactly. It's a, it's like you say, it, it really changed my view. Also my, my view about this world, you know, it's not a flat earth. Definitely not. So, <laughs> and there's a lot, there's a lot to discover underneath the surface, you know? Mm, yeah. So what's the fascination with, I mean, cause you can explore the earth an entire lifetime and still not find everything. Yeah. What is it about the ocean that fascinates you specifically? As I mentioned, you know, the, the, the colors, the species. The species, it feels like an eternal place. I think other people are uh, dreaming of uh, becoming an astronaut. That was never something that fascinated me, to be honest. I also would never, I think, jump uh, out of a plane, you know, and <laughs> do, do something crazy in a, in a balloon. The, the, the sea, the ocean, there's something very calm when you dive. Also swimming, I love swimming. I feel light, you know. Not not only light regarding my 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 body weight, my body feeling, but also light when it comes to sorrows or whatever you know uh, mm-hmm. concerns you. It really it does good to me. And I think that the ocean always was something 
that was untouched somehow you know it was pure it was pure and that's yeah that's maybe a bit why i changed my professional life now because it really concerns me what we are doing to the oceans but not only the oceans the environment in total yeah, yeah. so how did you find tide like this is a you know you're making a career decision you're switching kind of what your path is to go after something that you know you really believe in and you have a lot of heart behind mm. how did you find tide and what was kind of that process looking like mm. was it kind of easy to find your fit kind of in the in the arena or did it take a little bit to find it well uh, somehow it was a how do you say it it was a fate your destiny destiny it was destiny because i was not happy anymore being a journalist here the all the medias have changed uh, the working situations have become worse working as a journalist you know so uh, the structures have changed so it was for me being a journalist for 20 years i felt tired tired um, within this business environment and i also felt burnt out so i was looking uh, how do you get out of a midlife crisis or whatever you call it you know and you, you look for a new inspiration and that's when uh that's when i met or talked with thomas shorey about the uh, goals for the rest of our lives i was a uh, mid 40s so here in europe you still have to work for another 20 25 years so you have to find uh, a new mission you know to uh, make yourself happy and be happy and thomas he already told me about tide and his vision with tide a couple of months before we finally met and sit together and he told me hey listen i need a second guy yeah who's willing to push this whole project it was tide was his idea but um, it was an a sidecar you know thomas is uh, running a family business he's uh, manufacturing watch straps for many many well-known brands so it's part they are part of the swiss watch industry and he came up with tide when, after he saw uh, one of those uh, devastating documentaries you know about plastic pollution he came to me we knew each other for a long time already and he told me hey i think you would be like the yeah you could be the co-founder and i have another business to run and i need someone who shares the vision and helps me to put tight on on the feet wow wow that's incredible so it really was kind of serendipitous you're looking for a shift care about the ocean and then here this opportunity just comes yes what did it feel like kind of going into really starting a business i mean had you had you done that before kind of in the past like had you any started any side businesses and stuff or was this all kind of a a new world of exploring yeah i have uh, started side businesses uh i have written books for instance um i have uh, moderated a tv show so i was used to do side businesses but the, the difference here is we're talking about a global a, a company which is globally active so we started from scratch because this was it was and i really think it still is a bit quite a, an innovative idea to start a circular business that yes spans a net all around the world when it comes to sourcing and upcycling ocean-bound plastic so for me it was a like a diving into new water when it comes to the for instance, what is plastic? What, uh, what, what is, what is it about the plastics processing? But my job is and was communication because we have to, communication is everything. I think in life and in business, as you know, that's what we do now. And, uh, um, so we have, and that is our luck. We have made some studies together with the swiss university and there you know are the experts when when it comes to plastics processing and recycling so so we had this knowledge already at the university and what we needed to build was a an internal team and connect the dots also to places like thailand or the philippines where we are sourcing the material 
but of course it wasn't an easy ride <laughs> no never it's never easy yeah that's that's the interesting part because i and i would love if you if you have any info kind of around you know how the plastic industry works i mean i think we we, we buy products at the at the market we you know order things online and it, and it shows up and that's the material and we hope it lasts a really long time but we don't necessarily know the process of how it's actually made like what is plastic how prolific is plastic is it in everything we have i mean what is mm. from kind of your perspective how does that industry work in terms of plastic processing like where does it all come from mm. for me it was um astounding to learn that plastic is everywhere i wasn't aware of that as a private person not connected to uh, this business uh, or industry you're not aware that Plastic is everywhere. It's in every part you touch, <laughs> almost, you know. Many people forget, for instance, that polyester, that their shoes or their jackets are also made of plastic, you know. And also, I think many people are not aware that plastic was a fossil resource once, like the oil or gas. So for me, this was also new terrain. I have learned a lot and I have come to the conclusion that I think I'm not an opponent to plastic. I think plastic is everywhere. It, it does also good, not only harm. But what we have to find is like a reasonable way how to handle plastic. And the most reasonable way is to keep it within the circle, you know, because once the damage is done, it's done. So our mission or our vision is, okay, there's a lot of plastic waste. We can't change that within the next six months but we can change the habit what do we do with the waste are we doing danger and harm to the the environment or are we trying to use this waste and bring it back into the circle mm. yeah so i mean what's the what's the process of plastic in its lifespan specifically after use what generally happens because i mean if you think about it as a consumer at least in the states you have you know, numbers on everything and you put in the recycling bin and then honestly, you just kind of hope that they're actually sorting it and doing the things correctly. Yes. How does that work in kind of the bigger plastic industry on the kind of the supplier waste side? What's what's the lifespan of it after after it's used by the consumer? Yeah, I mean, I think I can only talk now uh, from my personal experience here in Europe. I think the most common plastic that is being recycled uh, is the, the PET bottle. But this bottle you use for, let's say, maybe 10 minutes. You drink something, you buy a bottle, <laughs> you drink you drink your lemonade, and then you throw it away. Now, I think, as you mentioned, in uh, more and more countries, we have a recycling system for these kinds of bottles. But for many plastics, and uh, I'm talking here also about Switzerland, which always claim that they are at the forefront of uh, recycling and uh, protection of the environment. Switzerland, for instance, for a long time, you didn't do anything regarding recycling with the other kind of plastics. The other types of plastic you just threw in the rubbish and then it was burnt. And in winter, we can heat our apartments. So that is a very wow. short lifespan in my eyes. Then we, if we now think about tropical countries, they don't even need to, yeah, they, they have warm houses and warm apartments. So they, <laughs> they don't need to burn the plastic for heating systems. What I have seen in Southeast Asia has shocked me. I have seen women burning plastic bags and uh, they are were, were using it for a frying pan, you know? So. They take oh the the meal for their for their family by burning plastic yeah. trash. So I mean, just imagine how poisonous this must be. <laughs> so what I have seen there is that there's in many places there are no existing waste management systems. So the modern world created the. Plastic, we can, which can be very useful for packaging. It also extends the lifespan of 
food, for instance, I, I really see, you know, the advantages. I, <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think what we haven't, or what the industry hasn't delivered to us is um, a manual, you know, what to do with this material mm. after we use it for the original purpose. And I also think that the classic plastic industry probably is not interested, you know, in recycling. I mean, why should they? They uh, they can sell plastic and, and plastic and plastic. Uh, why should they be interested in keeping it in the circle, for instance? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you guys look to solve the problem, I mean, I would imagine one of the problems that you're trying to solve is as a, as a business owner who's buying any type of plastic material in their manufacturing, you're, you're going to want to know the quality of, of that plastic. Mm. Was that part of kind of what you guys are trying to solve is, okay, if we're going to close the loop and we're going to make this circular, we have to make this high quality too. What was that process like in kind of solving that problem? Yes, I think that now here comes uh, another part of the destiny. We were very lucky that we were connected to the Swiss watch industry because as you know, Another true cliche, Swiss watches are very precise. <laughs> are, are, are they the best watches? That's my question. <laughs> they for sure have some of the best watches, yes. <laughs> but there are also, uh, um, yes, other watch industries that I look up to, you know. <laughs> it's not a patriot thing, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they, they are very precise and the standards are very high. We had these connections to the watch industry, not only the Swiss watch industry, also the the, uh, the American watch industry. For instance, uh, Nixon watches, the surf brand, belonged to one of our first clients to develop a watch made of tide ocean material. So, so they asked us to develop uh, strap material, which is polyester, like nylon, but also cases for the watches. So from the very beginning, we had to meet these high standards. And that was also good for us because we wanted to find a solution to meet those high standards because we knew, you know, um, the bottle to bottle principle is well known already. So everyone knows we can recycle a PET bottle. And we wanted to prove that it actually should be possible to upcycle the material. We call it upcycling because a drinking bottle is being used for 10 minutes but a watch, for instance, you wear hopefully for several years. So we keep this plastic waste much longer in the circle before the end of the next lifespan. Yeah. So is the secret with plastic about making products with plastic that are intended to last a long time versus the immediacy of it? Because, I mean, you mentioned there's plastic is a good material and it's not going anywhere, but the way we use it kind of needs to change. Is there kind of like a threshold that you think, you know, we should be making things out of plastic versus alternative materials? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Is everything made of plastic really... Is it necessary that this was made of plastic? That's your question, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like, is it made of plastic? And then if, you know, if it's something that's made to last, you know, 40, 50 years, yeah. is, th- is there a point where it's actually better to use plastic? Because if you were to use another material, it would break down and then you need to actually create that yeah. product again in a shorter period of time. You know, what's that line? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, it really depends from product to product, you know. Just to give you an example, I um, I have read so many studies now also about um, how ecological, uh, what's the ecological advantage of biodegradable um, materials, you know. And there's always also a downside if you use materials that were originally intended to be food, for instance. So... For me, it's very complex. I'm a, a this must uh, yeah a professor must answer this specific question who has read all the different studies. But I think me personally, I think much more about my use of plastic. For instance, we have a policy within our company that we try to avoid plastic packaging when it comes to our lunch breaks. You know, so if we go to the 
local shop and buy some uh, fresh food from the corner shop, the Indian corner shop or um, Pakistani corner shop or the Thai corner shop, you know, we bring along our own, how do you say, tray, food tray. These are the, 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 the small changes in our personal habits and use that I, um, I think are important. And then on the big scale, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's such a huge topic. I don't know where to start with. I mean, <laughs> plastic can can be a fantastic resource and it can really last for decades, which is great. But it's really bad when it ends up in the ocean because it lasts for decades. You see? <laughs> so let's dive in a little bit to actually what mm. Tide does. So for the people that don't know, what do what yes. does Tide do essentially? Tide essentially has developed a mechanical method how to recycle and upcycle ocean-bound plastic waste. We are collecting ocean-bound plastic. Uh, we started um, originally in the Caribbean, didn't work out, then continued in Southeast Asia where we are collecting and collaborating with social enterprises in Thailand, in the Philippines, in Indonesia. And we are also opening up now a subsidiary in Mexico because our goal is to be present on every single continent to collect ocean-bound plastic that is threatening the oceans, the environment. And we also want to upcycle it on-site. That is our idea, to upcycle it on-site so that it becomes a new raw material. And this new, new raw material is as good as virgin plastic but it has a, a much less impact when it comes to CO2, for instance, because it's a recycled material. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, and so when you guys are actually looking at, you know, sourcing all of this material, so I think for a lot of people, when you say like ocean bound plastic versus ocean plastic, I think whenever you hear ocean and plastic, usually right next to each other, most people think you're, you know, taking nets and removing plastic out of the ocean mm. and then processing that and turning it into something else. Mm. You guys do ocean bound plastic. How does that, how does that supply chain work? I mean, do you guys, is it through companies that would normally landfill it? Is it companies that already have their waste cycle and you take it off their hands what what does that process look like so that way i mean people can understand you know the difference honestly between ocean bound plastic and actual ocean plastic yes the, this distinction is very important to us because um the term ocean plastic i think is a bit vague there has also been some greenwashing in the past i think uh, you know when it comes to what is ocean plastic for us, this distinction was very important from the very beginning, because I think no one is, uh, you know, catching all of their plastic out of the deep blue sea. It's it's also a questionable if this, uh, you know, if this effort would be sustainable. For instance, I don't know, but we we are focusing on, on ocean-bound plastic. This means we are making sure that we are collecting plastic that would eventually end up in the ocean. Usually, ocean-bound plastic is defined being plastic that can be found within a distance of, I think, 50 kilometers away from the coastline. Now, we have narrowed this down. We have narrowed this down to 15 kilometers. We are, for instance, just to give you an example, we have fishermen who are collecting plastic on remote islands in the Andaman Sea. I uh, have just come, come back from uh, two islands. Uh, one is Koh Chang in Thailand, in the Andaman Sea. Koh Chang has no electricity. Koh Chang has uh, a lot of tourists in the high season that are coming from the mainland. You drive by boat, I think, uh, around between one and two hours to end up on this beautiful, it's, it's, it's like the beach, you know, the movie. It's a, it's a, parad it's a paradise island, <laughs> <laughs> but they don't have a, a waste management system. So in the past, so far, all the plastic ended up in the ocean. As soon as monsoon season starts, so the rainy season starts, and uh, they have like a rainy season for half a year, this washes all the litter into the sea. Into the sea. That happens all along this coastline, also the, along the mainland. 
So that's why we are focusing on ocean-bound plastic. Plastic the fisherman brings on his uh, long tailboat to our, our social enterprise was either already in the ocean and washed ashore, or it would have ended up in the ocean. That's so interesting that that's, there's kind of a radius, if you will, to make it, you know, quote unquote, ocean bound plastic kind of in that, in that context. Is it more about the waste management system or the abundance of the material itself? Because it it sounds like, you know, it's more, how do we handle it? I mean, I think the perception of when you see, you know, trash floating in oceans, you assume that it was floating from somewhere, another continent a long way, and it traveled all the way there. Not that, you know, maybe it was monsoon season and that the trash mm. that was already there just got mm. pushed into the ocean. What do you, what do you think it is? Is it more about the waste management system or the actual material itself or a bit of both? It's a very good question. I think it's both. Yes. I think it's both. I think people, as I said before, you know, people didn't get a manual how to treat plastic. So what do we do with plastic? Can we throw it away just like we can throw away the rest of the fruit we have eaten? No, <laughs> it's, uh, we shouldn't do that. But uh, did we provide a, ma- a waste management system for, for plastic? No. So. People got something new, but they didn't get the solution how, what to do at the end of the life cycle. And then um, when we talk about Kochang, this island, they have a lot of plastic bottles that come from India. So in the monsoon season, a lot of plastic they are collecting is not even from Thailand, it's from India. So from, from a country that is hundreds of miles away, you know. I was in Mexico a couple of months ago, and the, the plastic they were collecting along the, Mexi- the Yucatan, so along the Caribbean, they collect the plastic that originated from 15 different countries. You know, they saw, they could see this, they could see this on the labels. Where does it come from originally? So it's, it's really incredible. It's incredible how far a piece of plastic can uh, travel and float once it's in the ocean. Yeah. We need to, in those islands, for instance, we need to establish waste management systems. We have a warehouse, we have a, um, a watch brand, uh, Mogus Lacqua, they have uh, sponsored the warehouse. So we are extremely grateful that um, some companies not only buy our material, but also, you know, like make a special donation to help us establish more infrastructure because infrastructure is desperately needed. And education is desperately needed. So what should we do? But nothing goes without the other. You know, it, we can't explain how we should collect plastic and where we should put the collected plastic if we don't have the infrastructure to process the plastic. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the, the global issue about plastic pollution has also been exported, by the way, exported by so-called, yeah, industrial countries you know (laughs) they sold the trash to developing countries who are always in need of money of course not always have you know the solution to process the trash they are being paid for so a lot of asian countries now stopped to import trash because they uh, yeah everything landed on uncontrolled landfills and the most of, most of the trash, not only plastic, ends up in many countries, you know, ends up on uncontrolled landfills. And uh, no one feels responsible for it. No politician, yes, wants to touch this usually. <laughs> this topic, everyone tries to forget about it, but uh, the reminder comes back when it's, uh, in the end, uh, a couple of months later, it's being washed into the sea. Then. You have the polluted beaches uh, for and the tourists who see this and suddenly they uh, realize, hey, uh, we have an issue here. But who's in charge to solve it, you know? How difficult is it to process plastic into another raw material or take a bottle to another bottle? I mean, from from I guess more the question is from an 
infrastructure standpoint, what does that look like? Like if you're going to set up a waste management system, is it 2000 meter building with, you know, a bunch of equipment or can you theoretically do it in a small space? You can theoretically do it in a small space. I mean, it all starts with uh, the collection of plastic and then with the sorting. That is very crucial. You just can't mix a PET bottle with a polypropylene um, canister, for instance. You know, There are different types of plastics and they have to be pure. This is crucial. So we have to teach the people, we have to uh, give them the right instructions. The, as you mentioned, there are um, the, the numbers in the US, for instance, uh, for the different types of plastic. There are also infra infrared systems that um, are making sure that, for instance, there's no metal in it. So everything has to be as pure as possible. But then I think you're really able to do anything. You know, it's a, that the sky is the limit. When it's sorted, when it's washed, when it's uh, processed, we are collaborating with uh, recycling companies that have uh, rather huge facilities. But when we started, we started with the university's lab. So in this lab, they have a rather small machine. They are not processing 100 tons a day, you know. And the first, first load that was collected uh, in Haiti was shipped to Switzerland because uh, that's where we did the studies. This kind of plastic was absolutely, we, we couldn't use it. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was waste we couldn't process because it, it was shredded wow. um, um, into flakes and it stank extremely, was not sorted, not at all. And so it was really rubbish. And that was a tragedy. And uh, we thought, okay, maybe. Maybe it's not possible. Maybe uh, it was just a dream. But then um, we found and we were looking for other partners. We focused on Southeast Asia because that's also where, yeah, the, the issue is the biggest worldwide, you know. So we thought, okay, we have to focus where we find the biggest problem. And there we have to offer a technological solution and find the right partners who are willing to establish a system by giving waste a value. Yeah, maybe we talk about the value later because I think that's uh, something that is <laughs> extremely important to success. Oh, totally. No, let's let's dive into it. Yeah, so value value of it. Yeah, let's let's dive in. What's it all about? Yeah, well, for us this means, you know, bringing plastic waste back into the circle. It's a, it's a big effort and someone has to pay for it. So, our concept is we have to create added value. It, it might be regarded as, as trash, but actually it's a valuable raw material. And it, this starts by paying a fisherman a fair price above the market price for plastic waste, you know, because it's not his fault that there's plastic polluting the ocean. So real quickly, his... His job is not to fish for fish. His job is to fish for plastic. He is a plastic fisherman. Well, I don't. I don't take. Uh, I don't want him to give up his yeah. old job as a fisherman. You know. <laughs> right. Right. But but he ends up having to do pretty much plastic collection before he can fish. We give him. Let's say we give him a motivation to look out for plastic. Mm -hmm. Like the the same motivation he has to um, catch some fish. We are also like a marketplace, like uh, where he brings the fish, he brings the plastic. Yeah. Oh, I love but, that. Uh, the thing is, he is also very happy to have this, let's say, second leg in a professional way. Why? Because there's the, as we all know, there's a big fishing industry with uh, huge vessels, you know, they are a big threat for the small fishermen and fisherwomen, you know, because uh, they are fishing empty the ponds ashore and that uh, they are really struggling, you know, to find enough fish. Then when we talk about a beautiful tropical country like Thailand, Corona hit this country very hard. So Thailand depends on tourism, like many of those beautiful tropical countries, all those paradises. 
but the tourism didn't happen during the pandemic. So the fishermen didn't have the possibility to sell as much fish as he was used to, because when there are not no tourists, you are, the, the market gets much smaller, you know, for fresh fish, for instance. So when we came and offered uh, to pay a very decent price, they all were happy, you know, and they, uh, because the, it helped them to survive. On this island in Pochang, I met a lady. She runs a guest house, you know, beautiful guest house. She has bungalows on the sea. Uh, it's like a dream. And, but they have uh, more than six months per year. They have a uh, monsoon season, rainy season. And then the tourists are not interested to explore the island, you know. It's just bad weather. So she has no income for six months. And that is quite heavy. And she was really in tears when we told her that she can now work for us these other six months and collect plastic on the island, bring it to us, and we pay her and we give her the money for her work. You know? Wow. That's amazing. I mean, how does how does that feel to be kind of having that impact? I mean, you're you're literally not only helping on the plastic side, but you have this other benefit of like truly helping a community too. Yes. I mean it's not that I feel, how do I feel? You know, it's not that I feel godlike, not at all. We are privileged and, and we have to share this privilege. And uh, if we want to make the world more sustainable, sustainability also means that everyone benefits from a good idea, I think, you know. There I'm uh, maybe a, <laughs> a bit of a, um, yeah. A naive, almost a naive thinking person. I really think that everyone should have the best possible life. And if we want to give value to waste, I think we have to give value to, to work too. You know, we have to appreciate what everyone within the supply chain does. We can't, we can't earn money on the shoulders of the country's people. You know, that's just not what a, a fair trade market and a fair world uh, can be uh, based on. And that's that's something we really believe in. That's really something we believe in. That's uh, really important to us, you know. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say is, I mean, that's, that's something that's in your DNA as a company. Yeah. And so as a corporation, for example, that decides to use Tide ocean plastic, you know, you can actually you know, have that impact as a, as a business and a consumer, because you know, you're investing in the raw material in the supply chain, that's going to have the greatest benefit for the entire community. Like there's nobody that's getting taken advantage of along the way, at least in your step of the process. Yes. That's when we now talk about the business and not just philosophy, then uh, that that's the conclusion. You're absolutely right. You know, because in the end, I mean, we can only survive as a business when someone is willing to pay a bit more for ocean-bound plastic, and this brand or company has to understand why is our price higher and not the same as virgin plastic, because we give we give this waste a value, you know, and this value is not only protecting the environment, it's not only cleaning the beaches, it's also um, paying fishermen, paying someone in a social enterprise who is sorting plastic, who is washing plastic, a very fair price above market to give them the same appreciation, you know, about their work to, to yes, to keep the oceans clean. And in the end, the brand who sees this add-on or who sees this uh, advantage is, is of course also using this story uh, for their marketing and that's where they get that's where they get the added value i think everyone we want to be like the the world's number one label when it comes to the use of good plastic <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i i hunter I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it those good yeah. plastic <laughs> and so when it comes down to now that step of the process, I mean, how does how does that work for Tide? Is it because I would imagine one of the questions that you get is, you know, is this still the same quality as virgin mm. plastic? Like it it has to if it doesn't meet the product standard of the company, they're kind of putting their brand in jeopardy by risking it for good 
quote unquote good plastic if they don't know yes. if it's good or not. So what is it like in terms of the quality when you guys process it? Yes, I mean, the, we have a chief technology officer. We have so uh, the university where we are testing the material all the time, where we are also doing new innovation tests with a new kind of plastic materials. And so there's the technological part and the, the scientific part that makes sure we are meeting those standards. And on the other hand, we have to do, we have to give the teams on site the right instructions. It's not that we uh, have succeeded from the beginning. You know, it was a, uh, there's always a a learning curve. As I told you that the first container was really not uh, processable. We couldn't use it, you know, but we have met now standards where when we take, when you take a look at, at watches, for instance, um, we we have we have met those standards a couple of months ago a scandinavian company launched the first adult toys made of ocean bound plastic interesting so just imagine what it takes to succeed when it comes to such an intimate (laughs) object like a a sex toy you know definitely so so we meet (laughs) so we meet those standards but i think the secret is that you always have to start with the final product, you know. The classic plastic industry is a linear industry. Everyone within a supply chain does something and then sells it to another company that buys it and does something. And in the end, you have a car, for instance, <laughs> you know, or, mm-hmm. or, a, yes. or something else. You have a, a chair. Okay. Now, we have a different approach. We ask the, bl- the brand, what is your purpose? What is your idea? What do you want to produce? We, have just, we are just now about to finalize a project with a company that uh, produces earphones, you know? So we start with the earphones. What, uh, what kind of materials are they made of? And what do we have to achieve to make it work? Same with a chair or a shoe. So. We always start with, in talks with the, the brands about the, we start talking about the final products and then our sci- scientists go back and see what are the parameters that we have to match to produce this in a quality that raises no question compared to virgin plastic. Oh, that's that's awesome. And I, I love that you touched on that process because I think that's an important part of the process. I think when you're introducing, in this case, a new material that happens to be an old material, mm. you have that education side of, you know, making sure the the end customer is getting the same product that they're expecting. And I think a part of that process is really the education around, you know, hey, we're going to research what's the best material for your headphones. Yeah here's why it's different. And I would imagine it's a learning experience for the brands too. And they probably gain a new appreciation for kind of the plastic process too. Absolutely. And you know, a lot of, a lot of companies are approaching us because they want to become more sustainable, which is really fantastic, of course. And I think basically every company or a lot of companies want to become more sustainable because they see the problem and, and they also want to be part of the solution. But then after these first contacts, you also face skepticism. You're completely right, you know, um, uh, this was waste. Does it really match the expectations? It's not only the... I think people who are in a shop, they expect that it meets the expectations. I don't think that they doubt it. but. Maybe the, the person who's in charge for the supply chain within a brand, you know, within a company, he's or she's uh, skeptical. Is this was waste? Does it really match our expectations? And uh, we can't afford, of course, um, uh, losing money or losing reputation. So that's the moment where we really have to prove them why it is possible and how it is possible and that it is possible. And the more products that are being launched now, the better for us because we can prove with every successful launch, we can prove, hey, no worries. We really match the same quality. If you think about it, it's not that astounding because 
if uh, coming back to a PET bottle, this bottle once was approved for food grade. So it was approved to touch our lips, to be connected to our bodies. Basically, this must be a very safe and pure, good material. So if we create something new out of it, we have a, a fantastic basic material already. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We call it waste, but think about what it was before it was collected. So Yeah, that's a very that's a very, very good point. I mean you you're already starting with a really high quality right. raw exactly. material. Yeah. That's amazing. And so when it comes to I mean the consumer side, I mean what's the hope for Tide? Is that it becomes kind of known? Because I think I think in the industry, you know, most of the time you know the end product you know you know this is an iphone Mm. this is a you know branded product Mm. from a company but you don't know necessarily the brand of the raw material going into it are you does tide kind of want to be that brand that's ah yes we use tide specifically and it's something that brands can stand by and say yes this is we use this as our recycled plastic material not just we use recycled plastic yes exactly it is our big goal that people talk about um, this is uh, ah this is made from tide like they say now ah this is a cortex you know when it comes to a windproof jacket cortex is uh, the material it's not it's not the brand the jacket comes from a, another company probably a fashion company but they use cortex so we want to become like the this self Explaining label for ocean-bound plastic, and uh, and we we're getting there. That's uh, yeah, I'm I'm re- really hopeful that uh, we're getting there because um, more and more brands are contacting us and they are asking us, can we use the logo? Because we want to make sure that people see it's made of tide. You know, they don't just want to uh, mention this somewhere on a label in a seven point font you know <laughs> they, they really they really yeah. want to use our um, logo uh, to make sure people see that it's made of type ocean material and nothing else mm, i love that and and one of the interesting materials that i notice you guys offer is 3d printing filament yes what has that process kind of been like and is that kind of like an a new frontier in manufacturing. So I haven't I haven't jumped into 3D printing that much in any any conversations, but obviously it's a way where you know traditional manufacturing you have you know molds and there's usually a little bit of waste with each mold because you're not going to print you know perfect material necessarily for your shape. Mm. 3D printing allows for I think less waste because you're only printing what yes. is needed, not a lot yeah. of waste. How has that kind of been for your business kind of diving into that arena? Is it just kind of like a exploding world? Is it just kind of something you guys can jump into because you can? Yes. I mean, we jumped into this business because Professor Schwendemann from the university is also an expert when it comes to filaments. So we have an expertise there, thanks to him and his uh, fantastic team. They really uh, know a lot about 3D printing and filament, and they use their material to create two different types of filaments. And then suddenly we realized there's a demand, especially coming from designers, architects, you know, people who are professionally using 3D printing for prototypes, for instance. So for us, it's I think it's a 3D filament and the, also the results they are an interesting showroom because um, uh, Karim Rashid, a fantastic designer based in New York City, he has created a furniture collection. And this furniture collection is made of, is 3D printed. So it's it's like a prototype. And uh, I heard that it goes into series now. Yeah. So for those kind of uh, also well-known designers, this is a, a fantastic possibility to you know print their idea their vision without uh, having uh, extreme high tooling costs for instance you know and without having to go into mass production and then then you can also yeah you have a prototype you can sell the idea you can exhibit the idea for instance you know you can touch the ideas 
So we don't, for our business, it's a side business. But it's very interesting because we are, we get in contact with very interesting people. So Karim, Karim is really, uh, they call him the Prince of Plastic. He even builds, in the United States, he even builds hotels, you know. So he's a... <laughs> He's really one of uh, the top designers when it comes to the use of uh, different kinds of plastics. And we are flattered that people like him are now using our material also for their collections. Also artists, you know, artists who are doing um, exhibitions are classic artists, but also in, so it, it's a, it's an interesting scene, but it's not mass production filament. Maybe this, this will, maybe this will yeah, change. I yeah. Mean, I think 3D printing is still in the beginning, you know. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's an industry I think that's it's been around for quite a long time. I think, you know, now that as a consumer you can just go to the store and go buy a 3D printer, I think shows that it's, you know, definitely here to stay, but I think yeah, in mass manufacturing it's not it's not a sustainable solution quite yet in terms of for a business to produce mm something that's 3d printed it takes more time than doing something a little bit more traditionally so i think there's some innovation there but i i found it as such an interesting approach yeah. to using yeah. plastic in terms of 3d printing because it is less waste in terms of how right. you actually process yeah. it correct what's kind of your hope for for the future of either manufacturing or just plastic in general i mean and and specific more specifically too for tide i mean where do you where are you guys looking to take the business and, and kind of continue to expand it? Well, yeah, my, I mean, my hope is that we, as a society, that we really make the shift to use much more recycled materials, not only plastic, by the way. Of course, there's a the selfish wish that we, <laughs> that, 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 we, that we succeed with Tide. Of the, um, there's also, you know, like a, another level that we really make the shift as a society and become more sustainable. We, we all talk about sustainability a lot, but I think we all, in, including me, can do better when it comes to everyday life, you know? <laughs> I think that's what I try and communicate to a lot of people too, is, you know, I think they're under the impression that in order to, you know, live a more conscious life in mm. terms of making mm. decisions like this, you know, that it suddenly has to be this big shift or that it has to be perfect. And it's, no, no, none of us in this entire process is perfect. Yeah. The idea is that how can we as a global community all be just yeah. a little better? And then if we all become a little better, big, big things happen. And that's kind of always my, my belief in it is, yeah, you may have single use plastic stuff here and there in a certain situation. You know, if you're super thirsty and you have to get a bottle of water, you don't want to put yourself in like a health risk to not consume plastic. But, you know, what do you do the other 364 days a year? Yeah. And I think that that's where if we can start making those decisions as a society, we can make a bigger impact for sure. Yes, for sure. And, you know, uh, when you, when we think of drinking bottles, okay, there's also the option to use glass. But what is the impact of glass when it comes to production? You know, what is the carbon footprint of a glass bottle, etc.? So I think it's, I was once uh, um, invited to a podium discussion and um, there was uh, another person and she was very strict, you know, she was very strict against all plastics. And I understood her, but I told her, I think it's what, what she's talking about. This is maybe something we can reach in 30 years, but what are we going to do in the next 25 years, you know, because the problem is here, it's present, it's, it's now. So we have to find a solution. She, I, I'm also dreaming of, uh, of changing the world somehow. But then um, I think Thomas and myself, we are very pragmatic persons. So we understand that we want, if we want to make a change and if, if it should be sustainable, then it, it must be for, it must be, for instance, a, a business that we can't just rely on politics or whatever, you know. It must make sense to everyone. And uh, so far, the reactions were really good, I have to say. Um, as I told you, we are also privileged because we were able to start up with Tide and we are now in our third year and we still exist. So uh, it looks like as if we are here to stay and that, that was our hope and goal and vision. And, uh, and I think in my eyes, we, the world has produced more than enough plastics. Let's leave the 
oil where it was <laughs> and is, and use the plastics we already process and keep this in circle and uh, <laughs> and then then we're fine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's a that's a really great approach. And honestly, I mean, in three short years, you guys have done some incredible work. It made a huge impact and obviously impact a lot of people too along the way, yeah, which is really thanks cool. A lot. So, a few other questions that I had. So, one of which is, do you remember your for your very first? consciously sustainable purchase that you made where you purchased a product because you wanted to make a more conscious decision do you remember kind of your first one? Oh, what was it i mean i mean yeah <laughs> it's it, sometimes you go deep into the memory yeah, bank no, for this that was one probably when i was 18 and i bought a pair of uh, secondhand skis Mm, that's so interesting that nobody's yeah, answered okay. that before like that. Oh my God. Yeah. Secondhand skis. Oh my gosh. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Because those skis were used by someone else for six years and uh, I couldn't afford new skis. So I bought these and uh, I drove ski uh, for uh, another two or three years. And then uh, I was able to buy another pair of new skis. <laughs> That's that's fantastic. That's yeah. awesome. Maybe I I Very already cool. did something when I was a kid, but I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, I think it was probably yeah, the papers. Yeah. Yes, that might be. Yes, that was yeah. a school project. But yes, of course, that was. Yeah. Yeah. So not you know not like your choice necessarily, but you were living the lifestyle. So, what is your favorite place to go to enjoy nature? And this is this is an interesting question for you because you've actually traveled all over the world. Where is your favorite place to enjoy nature? Oh, that's a, how do you say <laughs> a mean question? <laughs> so you want you want me to decide? Am I right? <laughs> exactly. It's it, yeah. It's like choosing your I, favorite I child. Just come back from a family trip, a holiday, a summer vacation, <laughs> and we went to see a volcano in Italy. It's a volcano called Stromboli, and it's an active volcano. So you, you the volcano spits out uh, all ten minutes. So that was a uh, maybe that was uh, the last experience when I felt the strength of of nature and how small we are and how much bigger something else is. You know, because you you're in awe. You're standing in front of this volcano. You see the lava and spitting out uh, the, my most favorite place in nature i really love tropical countries and then i also love the mountains with the alps and both both are threatened the, the mountains uh we just had a tea reports this week in in switzerland the glaciers you know they are um, uh, it's too warm so <laughs> so the ice is melting so that is as worrying as uh yeah the pollution of the oceans that's awesome so well, not the not the actual melting. I mean, the actual you know place to enjoy nature. I mean, I think there's a there's a humbling part of nature. I think there's a moment like you mentioned with the volcano when you're yeah you're kind of humbled by the power of nature. Yeah, like and for me, sometimes it's in the ocean. It's when you realize how powerful yes, waves are, exactly, or how much how much water is moving actually yes, with a exactly. wave. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I I really feel. Um, yeah, humble is the is, is is the right word, you know. Humble, but also um, mm -hmm. you realize there's something much bigger than than we are. The humans have become a, a selfish society. Uh, I think every one of us can do better. I'm I'm including myself, you know. <laughs> and these experiences, I think, help us to understand why we should uh, do better and protect it, and also maybe. Just say no to a personal wish sometimes because um, we can, yeah, protect the environment by less consumation or whatever. I love that. So how can people get involved with Tide and interact with you guys, reach out to you, work with you guys, order raw material? Yeah, the, most of the people uh, are either following us on the social channels or visiting us, visiting our website. So. They can interact on our social channels. That's one way. But we are also very easy accessible via the web or via emails. So we're, we're completely transparent and you can reach out to us. You find us, you find our names. So we are not an anonymous 
company that is hiding behind <laughs> a big corporation or whatever. So it's uh, completely transparent. That's outstanding. Mark, thank you so much for just taking the time to hop on the podcast. Talk all about, I mean, everything plastic, I think it is the most in-depth on plastic that I've ever gone in terms of a conversation of really understanding what it looks like globally. And I just think what you guys are working on tight is it, it's huge. It's, it really is going to change the game. And I think the more manufacturers hop on board, I think the even bigger impact that you guys are going to have as a company too. Thank you very much, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. Um, yes, much appreciated that you took us on your show. Thank you for listening to the sustainable goat podcast. I'm your host, Steve Cassinum. With each episode, we can further define what it means to create a truly sustainable and resilient future. I think the new status is to show that, that you actually care. You want to drive change and you want to be part of a sustainable future. People fight for what they love. Let's really all start for a small but significant shift in the way we live, we consume, and we plan our life. Join us at sustainablegoat.com.